You know what the problem is with taking the red pill? It's hard to swallow. It's uncomfortable. Truth is usually uncomfortable, and I hope in this video to give you some water to help it go down a little bit smoother. Just a spoonful of sugar or good theology helps the medicine go down. <laughs> oh my goodness, where do I come up with this stuff? Now, if you watched my previous video about this, you will be a little bit more up to speed to know what to expect in this video. If you haven't seen it, I will leave a link in the description of this video so you can be up to speed. However, it's perfectly fine if you haven't seen that video. But a lot of what I'm gonna talk about today is a follow-up from, from that video. In that video, I went over the top five New Age teachings that I saw creeping into the church. Uh, there was a lot more than five, but those were the ones that I personally have seen and wanted to point out specifically in that video. They were the Law of Attraction, Oneness, Mysticism, Universalism, and Religious Pluralism. I will not be going over each one of these in detail like I did with my last video, but I will go over briefly what each one is and give you biblical information on why each one of those is not scriptural. So kind of think of this video as a part two, a follow-up to the previous video. First, before I get into the video on debunking each one of these, if you will, using scripture, I wanna point out something really, really obvious. If someone were to read the Bible and study it, they could very easily see that each one of these teachings, these New Age teachings, is not scriptural at all. The Bible very much can speak for itself on this issue. And uh, something else to point out is that the Bible is, is a spiritual book as well as a history book. We're reading things that were written down thousands of years ago. So when reading scripture, we need to keep in mind the historical era that it was written in and the Jewishness of scripture. I think that that's really important to point out because I think a lot of people can forget what historical era Jesus lived and walked in. So I think a lot of people can take what Jesus said and make some sort of super ultra hyper spiritualized allegorical mystical interpretation on it when really it's just not being read in the historical context in which it was written. So to them, Jesus taught in some sort of super spiritual allegorical code, and he would use symbols, for example, that can be interpreted very subjectively depending on what you're actually trying to get from the text. That's a very subjective way to read the Bible. It just simply wasn't how it was intended to be interpreted or written. All that to say that yes, sure, there are some things in scripture that are up for interpretation, but I can very confidently say that the essential Christian doctrines that we hold are very easily and clearly seen in the Bible. They're non-negotiable and they're easily laid out. And usually when I see that somebody that just doesn't get this or they're putting some sort of subjective interpretation on scripture, it tells me Two things immediately, either A, they're using something alongside the Bible, besides just the Bible, like some sort of spiritual experience or another book, a spiritual book or interpretation alongside the Bible to tell them what it means. Or B, they just simply haven't read it. I mean, even if they don't believe what it says, a non-believer can get what Christians believe from the text. So you don't have to be a Christian to know what Christians believe. After all, this is the very text that we get our beliefs 
from as Christians. I mean, guys, I've heard people say that Jesus was a medium, that he was a psychic, that he practiced witchcraft, that all these things that I'm going to talk about today in this video were taught by Jesus. When I hear that, I immediately know that there has not been a lot of Bible study done, nor is there an understanding of the era that the Bible was written in, or an understanding of Jewish culture. There's no understanding of Jewish law, of the customs of that time and that day. I mean, Jesus was a devout, monotheistic Jew who followed the Mosaic law. To say that he believed and taught these things just shows kind of an ignorance to understanding that concept. It's like saying Albert Einstein was like a famous actor and hated science, and he's the one that we need to give credit to for the movie industry and where it is today. It's like, no, that's historically incorrect. This is ignoring recorded history, and whether you believe it or not, it's inconsistent to what can be shown to be demonstrably true. So all that to say, scripture is very sufficient on its own to stand up for itself against these teachings. So let's get on with the list. First, I'm going to start with the law of attraction. Now, I have made many videos about the law of attraction in, in my previous videos. I'm going to put a, links in the description of this video if you want to check it out. It gives more information on what it is, what to look out for. But basically, the law of attraction teaches that your thoughts and your feelings manifest your reality around you. You are literally kind of the center of the universe in that sense. What you say, think, and feel molds your reality because you are vibrational. You're a vibrational being, and what you put out there in the universe will return to you based on those thoughts and feelings. You are God, and so is everyone else, and even if you've never heard the term law of attraction, I guarantee you that you know somebody or have seen in pop culture somewhere, even at some churches, which is the point of my last video, uh, you have heard these teachings to some degree or might even practice them to some degree without even realizing that it's from this teaching, the law of attraction. Now, why is this unbiblical? Uh, first, one of the scriptures that really, really shocked me whenever I was coming out of the new age and, and learning all this compared to scripture was James 4, 3. It says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, this is written by James, the brother of Jesus, and it's ironically, the, the chapter starts by giving a warning against pride. Another related verse is in Revelation 3, verses 17 through 18, when Jesus himself addresses this church. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now this is interesting because Jesus is telling them that they're the opposite of everything they were confessing. If word of faith teachings and law of attraction teachings were true, it would be impossible for Jesus to give them this report. Now a misused scripture is John 14, 13. Jesus says that whatever we ask for in his name, he'll do it. But again, without understanding the attributes of God, we won't understand the complete story and context of what's being said. One of my absolute favorite things about God's character and his attributes is his sovereignty. This is a fancy way of saying it. He's in control no matter what. So we can ask God. We do not tell God. We do not demand things of God to bring in our life. This is in his 
sphere of control. In his sovereignty, he acts on what is asked. And this is also true in Matthew 7, whenever Jesus says the same thing, ask, believe, and receive. Now, speaking of God's sovereignty, another scripture that's against our thoughts controlling our reality is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Another is Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Lamentations 3, 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Basically, what I see is that the only explanation the biblical writers see behind anything is unless the Lord ultimately brought it to pass. We see in James 4, chapter 13 through 15, says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And one of my all-time favorite instances in scripture is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure you all know the story, especially if you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, but you know, they refused to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar commanded everybody to bow down to. That in and of itself was extraordinary, but what blows my mind and what really gets me is further down in the passage. Let's go ahead and take a look. It's in Daniel 3, Starting in verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Check this out though, guys. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Oh man, let me just geek out on the scripture for a second. They knew, they knew that God could deliver them. They knew he was all powerful. They knew he was all good and that he could do that in his sovereignty. But when you can sit there and, and say, even if he doesn't deliver me, even if he doesn't give me what I'm asking for, whatever it is, I will still worship him. That is amazing to me. I love this verse. I love this scripture because it exemplifies how we need to be with God. In his sovereignty, he can deliver you. But even if he doesn't, will you still love him? Will you still follow him? Okay, okay, I'm done geeking out. Let's move on. The problem is, is that the law of attraction takes away the sovereignty of God. You are the sovereign, not him. But as many scriptures as I've read to you, I still have a few more up my sleeve. 
Now, a lesser known fact that a lot of people may not realize, especially people that call themselves Christians, about the law of attraction is that it was actually channeled through spirits. People think that this is a really, really old secret law of the universe, but it's not. It actually was channeled by spirits. The teachings of the law of attraction were made popular by books like The Secret that made it really accessible to the public. But this goes way back further than this book. The actual main core teaching of the law of attraction or any real new age teaching is that you are God. You are the center of the universe. Well, interestingly, when people say that new age is older than Christianity, they're actually, they actually have a point there because it goes back to the garden. This actually is taught in the Bible, but not by who you would think. Let's take a look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually tell you? Did he actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So yeah, this is literally the oldest lie in the book. Only a slimy serpent mixed with the depravity of the human heart can convince mankind that we can be our own God. Now let's move on to number two, oneness. In my previous video, I explained that New Age oneness, which is not to be confused with oneness Pentecostalism, by the way, is the belief that everything in the universe is connected and is one with a capital O. And I will elaborate a little bit more on this one that I did in the last video to point out why it's not in line with scripture. Oneness is described as being like a state of, of, of being. You're in the now, you just are, you just exist. There's no judgment, there's no fear, there's equality in all things. It's like a tolerance sticker is kind of how I put it. All evil, all suffering, strife, wars, poverty, everything is caused by the mistaken belief that we are all separate. It's through oneness that we can unify as a human race and be spiritually attuned back to the divine source of the universe, which we're all a part of. It's in this mental space of awakening that we realize our true nature, our true God potential, our true self in this sense with a capital S. Now the way to do this and the path to do this is to quiet your mind. It's your mind is looked at like a stumbling block on, on many aspects of this. It needs to be silenced. So in many ways, oneness is a sort of mindlessness. Now, how is this unbiblical? Because a lot of new age teachers actually quote certain scriptures like John 10 30, for example, where Jesus is talking about having oneness with the father. He was teaching how him and the father are one. But this is really ironic to me and again exemplifies my point about have they read the Bible? Like, do they know what John 10 is about? <laughs> because what it's doing is that it's showing Jesus's uniqueness as the one and only begotten son of God and unique because he has that connection to the father, unlike 
humans. And then furthermore, he's talking about how he is exclusive, that the way to the father is only through him. So they're obviously missing the point. If they're going to quote this scripture to say that, yes, oneness is in the Bible, they are completely missing the whole idea of what Jesus is saying. So in other words, it's not through gaining spiritual oneness to find fulfillment and peace. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone that we find it. Let's go ahead and look further at John 10 to see it in some context. John 10 verses 22 through 33. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. So it was a Jewish holiday. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now it's important to see how they responded to Jesus. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, just before this passage, he was saying that he was the good shepherd and that his followers are his sheep. He's the door for the sheep to go through. And here he's once again, kind of giving the religious leaders a hard time. He was making very exclusive claims by making himself equal to God, which no prophet had ever done before. It was always looking to God as the authority. It was never somebody actually coming and saying, no, I have the same exact authority as God. Every other prophet would appeal to God as the higher authority, but not Jesus. Jesus is saying that he is the authority, that he is on par with God. So when Jesus was saying that he and the Father are one, this was not a claim to divine oneness. It's, it's not like a spiritual attunement to the universe. To first century Jewish ears, he was saying that he has the same authority as God himself. This was blasphemous to the Jews and that's why they picked up the stones to kill him because back in those days, to claim such a claim was punishable by death. Now, not only this, but Jesus was very clear when he said that he came to bring a sword, not peace. He came to divide with truth. And a lot of people are actually really shocked that Jesus would say such a thing and teach such a thing, but he did. A lot of people see Jesus as this humanitarian peacekeeper and oneness in the new age sense demands this, but scripture says otherwise. In Luke 12, 51 through 53, he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division for from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We also see in Matthew 10 verses 32 through 34, whoever acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I will deny him before my father. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is a really, really good example of just simply reading the words of Jesus to see who he was and what he taught. He did not teach oneness. The disciples died for the gospel message, and that message was to repent, not to find some sort of mindless solitude in the universe so you can have equality in in all things and live in total bliss and happiness. And lastly, speaking of mindlessness, we never see once in scripture that we're to sacrifice our minds in order to have some sort of higher spiritual experience or knowledge. We're told to give our worries to God, to examine ourselves and such, but we're never told to basically become mindless, to become more spiritual. Interestingly, I think that this is kind of the epitome of the blue pill, if you will, because you're wanting to stay in that mind bubble, that mental comfort, because truth and thinking about things can be really uncomfortable for some people. And I I get that for some people, that there might be actual issues that need to be worked through, Uh, but I think that that's a separate issue. And in this case, I'm talking about a temporary solution to a permanent problem. Loving God requires using all of our mind, not abandoning it. And we can see this in scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. But check this out. This is really cool. Compare this to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, when he was asked what the greatest commandment of God was. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment involves using all your mind to love God. And this is interesting because Jesus further exemplifies his authority here by kind of altering the Old Testament verse from might to mind. This is very intentional and it does raise the bar for Christians because we're to love God with all our heart, soul, might, and our minds. We are commanded to use our minds and intelligence to understand and love God. Romans 12 verses two through three says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we are to test and discern and have sober judgment. And this is done not by shutting down our minds or quieting our mind through meditation or contemplative prayer, things like that, but through critical thinking skills and learning how to discern and making good judgments. Now, moving on to number three, we have religious pluralism. And I always say that if oneness was the tolerance sticker, then religious pluralism is the coexist sticker. All paths lead to God, all ways are the right way, as long as it's your truth and your path, no judgment. Jesus is just one of many ways, not the way. All religious paths lead to God, all religions are true. How is this unbiblical? Well, interestingly, a lot of Christians actually hold to religious pluralism as I laid out in my last video, but it really does show the irony. Because here's the thing, and this is where it's kind of hard for my mind to figure this out. For if you call yourself a Christian and you follow Jesus, by all accounts, the religious text that holds the very historical documentation of Jesus is the Bible, 
And, and the Bible is very, very implicit about there being just one way to salvation. There, there's only one truth according to scripture, not many truths. And there's only one person in history that I know of that has claimed to be that truth. The truth isn't in a religion or a belief system. The truth is a person. There's one truth, one way, one path to God. And, and this is very biblical. Now, plus also kind of a side note, a little philosophical here, but if everybody has their own truth, <laughs> by definition, that can't be true because it contradicts itself. You can't have your own truth over here and then have another truth over here and have them be equally true if they contradict each other. It's just another way to not offend in our culture today. Now, to further this point, Jesus himself is the one who made these claims that he's the way of salvation. John 10, 9, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 10, 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And my personal favorite, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's something really interesting about John 14, 6. It's interesting because Jesus is talking in response to something that Thomas asked. Let's look at the verse before verse 6 and see what Jesus was telling the disciples that the Father and where he lives, heaven, is only obtainable through him and him alone. John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's again making himself equal to God here. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, what's interesting about this is back in those days, when a groom was about to go marry his bride, he would go to the father's house and add on to the home. Then he'd go get his bride and dwell together with the rest of the family. Now here he's using the first century cultural understanding to show them that's what he's doing with the father. He'll come back for them and they'll be together forever. Throughout scripture, Jesus is called the groom and his church is the bride. Here in this scripture, we continue to see that imagery used. Now continuing reading, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, the way Jesus answers this is really significant. Thomas is basically asking whether he realizes it or not, how they can get to heaven and be with Jesus. Then Jesus answers him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven, gets to the Father, except through me. He responds by saying that he's the way to the Father, and that's it. He's the gate. He's exclusive. There's no appeal to higher knowledge spiritual awakenings, works, or anything else that he's appealing to that's mightier and greater than him to dwell with the Father in his house for all eternity. Now also, another side note here, kind of going back to what I was saying in the beginning of this video, is that taking the biblical story, the biblical narrative as a whole, forget it if you believe it or not. You would never come to the conclusion that Jesus came to die for everyone to have their own truth. He didn't die for everybody to have their own path to God. 
Why did Jesus come to die in the first place then? Why did he willingly lay down his life? Why did he die the way that he did for all mankind just to go and have their own path and their own truth and their own way to God? Why would he be called the perfect sacrifice? What, what is he sacrificing for us? Why, why were all these things done in the Old Testament? If, if religious pluralism is true and everyone has their own truth and all religions lean to salvation anyway, then Jesus claiming to be God and becoming flesh for the sacrifice of all mankind makes absolutely no sense. And neither does the death of the apostles. Now this leads me to number four, which is universalism. And it kind of begs the same question as religious pluralism. If Jesus died to save us, one has to wonder what he was saving us from. It teaches the same end game as religious pluralism, that we'll all basically eventually somehow, some way be saved and end up in heaven in some sort of heavenly bliss together in the end anyway. Another word that's used alongside universalism is universal reconciliation, which is similar in, in this belief that we're all basically eventually going to be saved and go to heaven. Why is this unbiblical? Now, from cover to cover, we see that the Bible is very explicit. And it's a story of how God has been planning to redeem mankind to reconcile to himself. And this is kind of what I was saying before in religious pluralism is, why did sacrifices even need to be done? Why did the blood have to be shed in the first place for the forgiveness of sins? Why, why did they have to do that? It was a life for a life. Somebody has to die for sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave his life for your life. He shed his blood for what? If everybody goes to heaven anyways, then what was the point of Jesus dying on the cross? It doesn't make any sense. Now, the entire book of Romans and Hebrews is a really fantastic read on this entire subject, but here are a few gems from scripture I'm going to read for you to exemplify what I mean. The first is in Hebrews 9, verses 20 through, 22 through 28. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I highly recommend reading the whole chapter, chapter 9 on this, because it's so good. Blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Now, if someone doesn't understand how God could demand something like this, I would argue that they probably don't understand the attributes of God, which is basically the stuff, the character, the very essence and character of who God is. Now, people tend to think of God as all loving, which is true. He is love. But with actual true love, there must be justice with that love. People demand justice when something is wrong. They want it to be right. The loving thing to do is not to just do nothing. You do something. You demand justice. So in his 
perfect love, he has perfect justice. Now, if justice is an attribute of God, then he must do something about sin. It's because of this perfect attribute of justice that he became a human being and took our place and died for us. Then this is why Romans is another fantastic read on this subject. You have Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 4.25 He has delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 8 verses 1-4 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's lots more, but I'm going to read a few more. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We're only reconciled to God through Jesus and his work alone. And if universal reconciliation is true, then it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. In the end, there will be no justice served and Jesus died for nothing. Now, the last one, number five, is mysticism. Now, I sound like a broken record because every time I define mysticism, it, I have to be very specific. I'd, it's kind of tricky to define because it can mean different things to different people. So let me be very specific in what I mean by mysticism. What I mean by mysticism is purposely seeking some sort of divine experience. And it's done for the purpose of higher knowledge, for manifestations of glory, powerful spiritual experiences, things like that. You're trying to get some sort of spiritual hidden truth and experience is basically your truth. And I see this running rampant in hyper charismatic churches and I've been very open about that. Now, why is this unbiblical? Well, we see throughout scripture and church history that there's a really high view of the sufficiency of the word of God. Now, to be clear, I'm not a cessationist. I absolutely 100% believe that God still does do miracles and, and he does work in the supernatural, but it's not the norm. This is not something that he does all the time. For if it were a miracle, it would need to be rare. It isn't done all the time. So I think it's important that, I, that I'm clear on that, but it's also really important to understand that people were were killed. They were burned at the stake alive for saying that the Bible was sufficient and that that we're saved through Jesus and Jesus alone by by faith, not by works. People died for that. To say that experience is on par with scripture or higher than it is just it doesn't hold much water. If you have to sacrifice your mind and the respect and authority of scripture to get closer to God, then you're getting closer to a caricature of, of God and you're worshiping your experience, not God. As I said before, yes, I absolutely believe that 
God does still do miracles and works in the supernatural, but he does them in his own sovereignty. And this is not done exclusively at the demands of human beings. We're, we're to seek God, whether we feel it or not. We are allowed to use our minds to worship God. And usually in this, this these mystical miracle movements, you're told not to use your mind. Your mind is going to hold you back. And it reminds me a lot of the oneness that we talked about before, about sacrificing your mind, laying it aside so you can have your experience. That is not scriptural. We don't need a mystical experience to tell us that God is always near and working in our lives. The Bible is authoritative, not our mystical experiences. And again, we can see this throughout scripture. Let's start with Acts 17 with the Bereans. It says they reason from the scriptures, not by performing signs, wonders, miracles. They believed because scripture was checked. In verse 11, the Bereans were of noble character, for they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Christianity encourages critical thinking and reasonable examination of what we believe and how to test what we're experiencing. We have in Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. In 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here, Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, verses 14 through 17. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Also, why would Paul emphasize the word of God when speaking about spiritual armor in Ephesians? He says the Bible, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And it's the only weapon, spiritual weapon that's used for actual battle, for attacking the enemy. It's the only spiritual armor that's talked about that you can fight the enemy with. Ephesians 6 verses 11 through 20. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an, an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I think it's interesting that the armor of God doesn't appeal to signs, wonders, miracles, or mystical experiences. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of salvation, of faith in the word of God. It's, it, that's what's used to fight the devil. Now, here's the bottom line with 
with this one that I always like to ask and I always uh, hope and pray that it gets people kind of thinking about this when it comes to, you know, the, the signs and wonders movement that we're kind of seeing right now in American Christianity. But would you still love and follow Jesus if you never had one single mystical experience or miracle? Is he enough for you? Or would this be a deal breaker? Would you demand this? Would you demand a miracle or experience in order to follow and love Jesus? So with everything that we went over, I literally do wish that I could just read the entirety of all these chapters and books to drive the point home. There is no substitute for good, solid Bible study and good, solid, regular Bible reading. Every single one of these beliefs that I went over today, they fall apart when looked under the lens of scripture, which is why it's really important for us to stay in our word every day, to, to read it. I could only read certain parts to you, but I do highly recommend that you go back and you read the entire chapter of every verse that I did go over. Uh, it really does help to, to remember the context, the time frame, the intent of the writer, to help us understand what's being said in scripture. And we can draw that out of scripture so we can understand the whole point of Jesus's teachings. I mean, there's a reason why New Agers don't use the Bible as their religious text. I mean, it can't work for them really in the end. As with every video I do, I will leave related links and resources in the description of this video. I suggest that you check them out. It really will help to give light to this video as it is kind of a part two to my, to my first one. Thank you guys so much for watching and God bless you.